Hey everybody, Tim and Mike here. We're so glad you're tuning in. I gotta say, Tim, you've had quite the week. Let's just review. Let's just review your week for a second, Tim. It's it's shocking that you're here. It's shocking that you've got your purple beanie on, that you're <laughs> smiling, and that there's some sort of alertness to your face. What is going on? Well, I am just one of tens of thousands who are got the Amanomicromanom. Yes, last the Transformer. Week, last week, that was my booster, but it turns out that I got the booster while having COVID, which is Ooh. a no-no, but I didn't know at the time. Yeah. So yeah, I got pretty sick for a few days. The whole family was sick. But this one's weird because it everybody's out of school and it's hard to test to be able to go back to school because the testing's taking like five days to get oh, results totally, currently totally. in our area. So yeah. I just got my results like two nights ago from last week. And uh but I'm already like post symptoms, so mm. who knows? Yeah. You know what was weird okay. though, is I, I was very frustrated because we've like I still wear a mask everywhere I go. And I don't go very many places and we've been very careful for two years and none of us got sick. So I was frustrated. This is mm-hmm. a thing. But then you know, the weird thing was I got weirdly depressed after I got my test result back. And I, I was trying to crack that last night, trying to figure out why did I feel that way? And there's something, and I don't know what the answer is. Maybe there's a therapist listening. They can chime in. But the, I wonder if it's the immensity of the existential dread that has been built around Mm. this you know we've watched so many people die and we have so many friends that are nurses and they're just you know this morning one of my friends that's a nurse was just like hey this is the worst it has been for a lot of nurses and we are crying every day and we're so overtaxed and overworked and overtired and i cannot imagine being a couple years into working with this and so i don't know if it was all that that once i finally got a test result that said positive, this weird, like dark blanket. Cause my wife is, she's so practical. She's like, well, yeah, you have it. Yeah, we have it. Like, let's just get better and go back to, you know, she's good about mm-hmm. that. And I'm just like, this blanket comes down. I'm like, what does this mean? Why did this happen to me? I can't <laughs> believe this happened. And very weird. It was oh. a very weird response. Oh, I'm sorry, man. I'm glad you guys are okay and better. We're cruising now. Yeah, it's but our just, whole little friend everywhere. group, they're all just down. Yeah, they're just dropping like flies. Every, everywhere. It's wild. Oof, I know. This is just nuts. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if there's a way to pin it on him. <laughs> I've got some good news. I like that. Um, we have a community of people who continues to increase in their kind encouragement and support. Um, I want to thank Dave and Sarah and Don and Tim and Dave Meacham, who goes to our church, and Jared. And then um, I shouted out Gabriel, but he goes by Gabe and, and emailed in. He's like, was that me? And I'm like, yep, it's you. So you're getting two <laughs> shout outs, man. Thank you. Th- but seriously, you all, or yeah. as they say here, y'all, y'all. thank you. Amazing. Um, and, and, and if you're on Patreon and we don't have your address, could you give us your address? Cause we want to, we want to mail you some stuff. And so that'd be very, very appreciated. We have a new website, voxologypodcast.com. Check it out. Surveys, newsletters, and such. Today, we have a really fun 
kind of story. So, so we, and I know we say this almost every single week, but we say it because it actually turns out to be true. The greatest joy of doing this thing the last, uh, it's now, we're going on seven years, Tim. That's wild. Good Lord. Um, the greatest joy has been the relationships in the community that has developed. And, you know, obviously we realize people don't listen to the podcast all the time or they'll take years off and come back to it or whatever. But there's this really cool extended community that's out there that we've been hearing a lot from lately. And it's been, you know, we've been hearing deconstruction stories. So I want to read a couple of those. Uh, and then we, we heard from a young lady, Renee, who is a public defender in Ohio who specializes um, um, uh, with cases on death, with people on death row. Yeah. And Tim, um, as you'll hear, has been stewing on the death penalty as a topic for us for a while. And um, it was just so cool to have her say, hey, I'd love to talk about this if you guys are ever interested in that. We're like, we're interested in that. Yeah. So. We have a we have an interview with her today. It's super cool. Um, I mean, she she is just an absolute dynamo. I mean, bright as all get out. So, um, but I want to read a couple of uh, deconstruction emails. I'm just committed to every episode reading some of these stories. Um, and uh, um, like this one, this one. This is a very short one. It's just really a note of appreciation. I really appreciated your conversation on deconstruction. The two biggest points that I really connect to is this idea of corporate believing balanced with individual faith. Me too. That's a huge one. The corporate aspect of our faith. Um, uh, he said, and the second one is the benefit of deconstruction. I, I question um of what people are calling deconstruction is what really sanctification looks like sanctification mm. is a fancy christian word for becoming more like jesus and that's one of the things we've been suggesting we would agree yeah. with this uh young man absolutely that part of the maturing process in christ is wrestling through some of these things if we are being sanctified to be more like jesus and less like the world it seems that this process of choosing to look less like the church and more like jesus is really healthy yeah. Man, we Weird. would so agree. <laughs> yeah. If we look at this from that point of view of sanctification, can we more readily lead people through and to this process? And that is all about the work of God and not us. So couldn't agree with you more, my friend. Thank you for writing in. It's from a young woman. Um, anyway, I'm writing to share my deconstruction story and add to the pile. A Amen. We love this. I feel like mine is a different flavor, at least from what I've heard uh, read so far on the pod, and I'm wondering how many others like me are in your audience. Hmm. Just for a brief background, I'm a 35-year-old young woman who was raised in a white evangelical Bible church in the buckle of the Bible belt, which means I was also raised in a proudly Republican household. Um, I heard all of the lovely conservative talk radio hosts in the car going to and from school, activities in church, and started re reading conservative print media like National Review in high school. My parents even bought me a subscription of the mag to take to college so I wouldn't be converted away from proper, proper political beliefs by those liberal elites in ivory towers. Smiley face. 
I've been slowly deconstructing since 2016, and I think that is a key date for many of us. <laughs> <laughs> Though that sped up for sure over the last two years, I don't consider myself spiritually homeless, though. I'm still an active member of the church I've been a part of since I moved to Arizona 10 years ago. My church is actually the place that has started and enabled my deconstruction. So this is great. Yeah. Back in 2015, our teaching pastor invited me and all the, and all the other small group leaders to take part in a year-long seminary-level course for lay people. It was during this class that the first scale started to fall from my eyes, and I learned that America is not and never has been the new Israel. And that the white American church actually resisted MLK and the civil rights movement. Um, fast forward to 2020, and my church leadership actually stepped up and decided to engage the racial justice conversation from the pulpit. We're a majority white church um, with a congregation that includes lots of MAGA bumper stickers and anti-vax, anti-maskers. So you can imagine how well that went down, but still our leadership decided to push ahead. And I was part of a discipleship group focused on racial healing, equity, and reconciliation. For the first time, I had a safe space to sit down with multi-generational groups of Christians, black and white, to build friendships and to talk through topics like racism and Christian nationalism that are so hard to discuss most of the time. Over the course of 2021, I learned to become, become comfortable asking the question, is this something the Bible actually teaches or is this something my culture has taught me? Yeah. I've learned that it's okay, wise even, to ask that question of every, all caps, teaching I come across, yeah. whether at my church or another media I consume. Love that. Yeah. And, and love that the church was a part of this. I mean, this is the great yeah. opportunity the church has. To sit and write off people who are doing this is a failure of discipling imagination. My yeah. goodness. Why would why would you why would you label somebody like this? Because you know. Oh, all right. Uh, last one, young man, long time listener, first time emailer. So welcome. <laughs> Shout out to Tim for being yeah, yeah. a fellow Enneagram Four. Shout out to Seth Erie for being the number one goat hype machine for the podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. I, ha I work with special needs kids myself, so I always enjoy hearing from him. Thank you, sir, yeah. for what you do. As a special, the parent of a special needs child, I am so grateful for people who love him. Yeah, and you can also see how uh, much Seth loves those who have worked with him. He's oh. Marco Poloing teachers from previous states and oh my goodness, yes. talking nonstop about the ones that he's you know, hanging out with these days. Yep, go, yep. You can see how far it is. It goes. Yep. He is a man who loves community. Like he is a man <laughs> yeah. of community, for community, and by community. <laughs> so uh, anyway, to the email proper. Listening to all the emails regarding deconstruction, in particular the many women and all of the grossly misogynistic context they somehow survived has really hit me in the feels. Hmm. My own fiance experienced similar things too. Without launching into details, she explained at length about how her family's church and most of her life in any church context as an adult in her 20s, she has felt entirely visible to congregants due to her single status, academic work as a PhD student, and personality of being a go-getter and not being just a docile housewife. Yeah. Her own mother told her during her single days that if she just, quote, dumbed herself down, unquote, 
wow. she would finally find a godly man. The irony is that she's a far, far more intelligent. She's far more intelligent than I could ever dream of, and I'm not really godly. <laughs> oh. Uh, and the thing for me is that everyone and their mother around me is deconstructing, even my own mother. Um, overall, when I look at the list of people in my life who are deconstructing, I'm kind of overwhelmed. For starters, let's throw in my entire family, mom, dad, sister, and brother. I'm the sole born-again believer in my immediate family. All my close friends are gone, too. Several acquaintances, too. Furthermore, when I look at people who I knew over the years and look at their current social media and outlooks on faith, they've all, with few exceptions, jumped ship. Unsure of whether this was a wise thing to do, I just finished the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and I just get it. I get yeah. why so many people want to throw it out in a blaze of glory. I really, really do. And I appreciate that we do as well. I was 17 when I first heard Driscoll scream, you, you, who do you think you are? Right. This was a very popular clip back in the 2000s. I remember when I was an impressionable, angsty... Uh, I remember when I was impressionable, angsty about hypocrisy and desiring genuine spiritual insight in my life when I abruptly heard this Random, angry, and apparently important pastor confirmed to me that I was probably not a godly man. Yeah. Wow. I wasn't ferocious. I wasn't macho. I wasn't a real man, nor did I want to be or even think I could be. But far, but for so long, and sometimes even now, I struggle figuring out what biblical masculinity looks like, let alone biblical living in general. Man, preach it, my brother. Preach. Yeah, this Enneagram 4 is not very macho. But, dude, if they saw your facial hair, they wouldn't say that. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, Timothy. Oh, so good. A couple of other things. For the majority, majority of my 20s, I left church, wanted nothing to do with hypocrisy, hubris, and, other, and people being jerks just for the sake of being theologically right. Mm. It was hollow then, it's hollow now. The biggest thing I think I found when I came back to the church in my later 20s was acceptance from Jesus that to wander is not only okay, but what he desires for us. It still feels weird to write that, uh, but, but um, Voxology, my church, men's group, and counseling have all confirmed to me that I think the only place I can follow Jesus and still be authentically me is to follow him from the margins and to follow him quietly. I love that, to follow him quietly. Repentance has meant turning away from angry white supremacist God, trite Christianese comments regarding legitimate traumas and injustices, and the Christianity must win at all costs mentality. Yeah. Sometimes I wish I could read a story about Jesus and just be that little kid again that thought Jesus was really, really nice and be happy that he loved me. Biggest thing I look for now in other Christians is their fruit. If they actually genuinely, wholeheartedly, and imperfectly attempt to love others. I want to love Jesus, and it's just so weird that something so compelling like loving Jesus is so often confusing, disheartening, and freaking exhausting. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I was thinking about that. I, I texted you the other day that I couldn't sleep, so I reread the first half of uh, Shane Claiborne's first book. Yes. Um, where he talks about, like, you know, the, the simple way how they founded that and the church that the homeless people were occupying the church tried to take it away yada 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 but he talks about like who's doing it really well mother Teresa, and he just like goes to a convent and gets mother Teresa's phone number and calls her and says hey we want to come live with you for three months to learn how to do this and then do that and they go and live in leper colonies and all this different stuff and it's like i 
you watch how he um and like he's like how does jesus say to do it oh let's try that but it there is a cost to it and the cost is you know they gave up everything else outside of that and yeah. i am way too terrified or or clinging way too much to the comforts of my life to ever do that and yeah. that's humbling yep and but it's a theme through everything just how much like what does it mean to die to yourself right and it it's that's asking everything of you and we're Dude. just I, or i am not um willing to do that and it shows in different areas and it's so when like with that email you just see when you see people that are willing to do that like to die to themselves and kind of sacrifice to what it is that jesus is asking to be done it's super inspiring and terrifying oh my at goodness. the same time yes <laughs> yes yep well speaking of inspiring people um here's renee and uh, it was great this was the first time we had ever met her yeah and um <laughs> so it's sitting, interesting. Yo, it was great how cool uh, just to, to hear somebody from our community. So hope you enjoyed the interview. We discussed it a little bit after, so stick around for that. Thanks for tuning in. All right, everybody. We are here with our new friend, Renee Monzon. And Renee right now live is coming at us from columbus ohio worthington actually and renee i just need a little glimpse of columbus weather at this moment what's happening outside take a look out the window what's going on at this moment it is cloudy 32 degrees uh and no snow on the ground which is pretty typical even though i would love the snow well a couple of things renee this is a big deal because first of all cloudy and low 30s is what columbus is for about six months of the year and it's so depressing nashville where i have moved from columbus at least it's sunny so today it's gloriously sunny it'll be around 50 degrees but we have renee we have like three to eight inches of snow coming and they don't know how to handle it down here so the whole place shuts down i mean everything shuts down when when we get hit it's absolutely crazy are you are you getting snow with this storm too or is it just i don't think so we might get a little bit but i lived in minnesota for a year so i had good lord cold the snow but the best part about minnesota were the days when it was like 10 degrees but sunny you would have sunny days and bitter cold and it was just beautiful yep yep sunny matters it's just how it Mm -hmm. works am i right stafford that's right sunny here yeah nice okay all right so two of us are doing great and poor Renee <laughs> just it's winter in Columbus. All right, That's Renee, it. tell us. So so we got this wonderful email from you and uh, we'll get into what what some of it said, but tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into our topic. Where where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Orange County, California, so Placentia, Anaheim, all that area. I love um, it. Yeah, grew up in the church, non-denominational churches, Calvary Chapels, then on to Evie Free Fullerton. What? And I know. Funny, that's (laughs) how I heard your name. What? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And and where did you go to high school? Valencia High School. Okay, Valencia. Go Falcons. Mm -hmm. Are they the Falcons? Tigers. 
close. Okay. Well, she no worries though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it was. I gave it a shot. Now, yeah. now, then to college. Where'd you go to college? I went to college at Lake Erie College in Northeast Ohio, Painesville, Ohio, to be specific. Now, um, now, I think there's some in our audience who would be asking, "What the H, Renee? You're in Orange County, California, Valencia." Not the Falcons, but the who? Tigers. But the Tigers. And you go to school near Lake Erie. Uh, um, where our mascot was the storm. No, well, fitting, <laughs> but unimpressive, nevertheless. Um, what brought you there? Uh, lots of things. I wanted a school I where I could be a political science major, and then I also ride horses. And they had a great, great equestrian program. Um, so they ride it was horses one of the few, in California too. Yeah. Uh, but it was one of the few places where I could major in political science, be entirely dedicated to that. Also be super involved in the equestrian program. And then they threw me a bunch of scholarships and I said, cool, let's go. Yeah. Columbus, Ohio. It is uh -huh. uh, political science major then. And then, so I graduated college in three years and went straight on to law school with the intention of doing international law and working for the UN and fixing all the big problems of the world. Perfect. Uh, quickly discovered that I did not like international law. I liked the American system of law as screwed up as it is. Um, I jumped from big firm civil litigation to real estate transactions. I was convinced I was going to be a law librarian for a while. Wow. And then uh end of my second year of law school over that summer god just completely transformed my heart mm. it was one of those wake-up moments of renee you went to law school to help people mm. um what does that look like wow and reading brian stevenson's just mercy listening to podcasts watching shows i was consuming as much information about the criminal justice system as i could mm. and like i said total heart transformation. And I said, I need to be a public defender. Wow. And so I started working towards that my entire third year of law school and afterwards. Um, and then it was this past year in uh, end of 2020 to beginning of 2021, when there was just that steamrolling of federal executions mm -hmm. and every single one, my heart was just breaking because I did the research and there were reasons why the execution shouldn't go forward. Questions about the cruel and unusual punishment aspects of the blend of drugs that they were using hmm. and the person's mental illnesses or lingering questions hmm. of actual innocence. Hmm. And originally I had been so set on like, ah, I'm going to do misdemeanor work as a public defender. There's a lot of injustice there and I want to do that. I'll stay away from the big scary things. And then God was like, haha, no, you're, you're going to do death penalty work. Wow. Um, and so completely gave me a heart for that. And a job opened up, um, in the Ohio public defender's office in the death penalty department, right at the time that my then boyfriend, now fiance and I were considering moving to Columbus, Ohio and mm. it, yeah, total Jesus thing, how it all worked out. Wow. Okay. So what does that mean for you in your career trajectory? So you're you're only working with people who are in situations where the death penalty could be applied? So I actually 
my office does everything after the trial. So uh, once somebody has been convicted and sentenced to death, that's when we step in. We do appeals, post-conviction, clemency, all the things that happen after their conviction. So you already have people that the court has determined they committed a death penalty eligible offense, which is aggravated murder. Hmm. And, And were you from your Christian background, was this a topic that you had spent a lot of time, if any, thinking about? Not really. It was something that wasn't talked about in the communities I was in, in family, any of that. Um, It was just something that I knew existed. Mm -hmm. I knew it was part of the criminal justice system. And growing up, I probably thought that there were times when the death penalty was appropriate because this is what our justice system has determined. And if states say this is what, you know, is eligible for the death penalty, then that must be what people deserve. Yeah. I didn't start questioning it until I was halfway through law school. And what was it that, that was there a moment or a case or a lecture <laughs> or a book that sort of provoked that? Yeah, it was, it was a whole confluence of things. It was having professors who were public defenders telling stories about their cases and hearing the everyday ins and outs of that. Hmm. It was uh, doing a moot court competition, which is basically representing a fake client uh, in, you know, a pretend appellate setting. Hmm. Um, And I was representing a criminal defendant. It was, and then it was reading Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. And I am fully Hmm. convinced that that book and movie are going to like raise an entire generation of public defenders who were (laughs) inspired solely by Brian Stevenson. Yeah. Um, Because yeah, those were the things that kickstarted it. And then it just snowballed. Was there any sort of theological wrestling you had to do uh, in terms of at least the way I was raised? And Tim, I don't, you know, speak into this if if your bringing was uh, different. But I was raised to just believe, yeah, it's in the Bible, and so it's biblical. And um, because America is probably the best, you know, setting for representing biblical values in the world currently. You know, there there seems to be sort of a permission given to at least have this as an option. Um, did you have to do any wrestling out of that, or was the kind of awakening for you, you know, just so eye opening that it was that it was like, oh, you go back to the text now when you see things differently? It was a little bit of the latter. The wrestling that I had to do um, when I was at EB Free, I started volunteering with Royal Family Kids Camp. Mm, which is a um, camp I, for uh yeah foster kids ages yeah. 6 to 11 where we just take them to have a week where they are just loved on and supported and given a safe space away from uh any of the troubles of their lives so um i over the years i had built connections with these kids and it was so easy for me to get angry at their abusers mm. and so when i started doing criminal defense work, um, I knew that it would be incredibly hard for me to work on cases where the person was accused of child abuse or somehow hurting a child because I was like, oh no, this is where my heart is. Mm. And I remember calling up Amy Gaw, who runs the camp at, uh, at EV Free. And I was like, how do I do this? And she was like, well, remember that the adults who are hurting kids in these ways were once those kids themselves. Hmm. And that was a huge point of transformation for me to see 
that it's not just people acting badly. It is people acting as a result of their environment, their experiences, the hurt that they've lived through in their life. And then by the time I was in my third year of law school in the criminal justice clinic and I get to go, uh, we were certified law clerks and working as attorneys under the supervision of professors with permission from the Supreme Court of Ohio. Mm. And I go to meet my first client and just sitting in a room with them. It's like, oh, you're a real human. We, we can read this police report and it sounds awful. It sounds like a lot of bad things happen. And then you're face to face with this person. It's like, oh, yeah, you're a person. I'm going to interact with you. I'm going to love you just like I would anybody else. Yeah. And so it was a lot easier to break down those barriers. And then over time, it's been so cool for me to go back to the Bible and read it from the perspective of an attorney as somebody who does criminal defense to see God's heart for justice in that way. Mm hmm. And usually that's the pushback that you hear is the heart for justice or the argument on the other side of the fence where it's like, how can you, I was just reading, you know, cause Shane Claiborne has been all over the place trying to, um, stop a bunch of executions and he's been pushing on the death penalty for a while. And just like last night, one of the comments was like, how, like, why, why don't you put your time and energy into like the victims? Like, why are you putting your time and energy into the culprits of the crime? Why are you not putting it into the people that, and I would imagine that's a lot of the pushback that you get from Christians or I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to superimpose. Have you, have you had pushback or those kind of conversations with folks? There is some pushback there and especially mostly from prosecutors and victim advocates, right? Because this is right. their job. That is what they do. I remember meeting um, a victim witness advocate again, through a church setting through, you know, we're both coming into this as people who love, uh, love Jesus and love the ministry that we're doing. And I ask her what she does for a job. She says she's a victim advocate. Ask me what I do for my job. I say I'm a public defender. And she goes, oh, you're the enemy. <laughs> and I was like, cool. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to say that about you, but good to know where we're starting off here. Right. Um, there is some pushback there. Right. And part of my job I don't want to devalue the experiences of victims or victims' families at all. Those are real and they are hard. And I'm not going to blow past that or ignore it. But what I am going to do is make sure that the process, the judicial process happens as fairly as it could. Because that's really what your job is as a public defender. It's to ensure that justice is done. Just as it isn't a prosecutor's job to obtain convictions, it isn't a public defender's job to get guilty people off of right. you know any punishment. Mm. Both sides have to be working to ensure the proper administration of justice, mm. to make sure that you know all the boxes are checked, that their constitutional needs of the defendant are met, and that's you know where I come in where I yeah. make sure that everything went as it should. And so, yes, there is pushback of, you know, oh, but people suffered here. You know, how do you, how do you fight against that? Like, well, maybe my clients suffered too. Yeah. Maybe they weren't given a fair hearing. Maybe the judge was super biased. 
maybe the prosecution fabricated evidence, right? You can't say that you can't stand with a conviction that wasn't fairly found. Hmm. Do you feel like capital punishment has a place in a just society or, um, yeah, you know, you shook your head. So go ahead and start talking. (laughs) Um, and why not? So there are multiple reasons for that. Capital punishment as it looks today in American society cannot and should not continue because of the rate of error we have. Plainly, if you just look at capital punishment from a statistics point of view, for every uh, 10 cases, 10 capital cases that we've had in America, one of those people has been exonerated. Hmm. That is a huge rate of error. Could you imagine if like one out of every 10 airplanes was falling out of the sky, we would do something about it. Yeah. But instead, we've just allowed this process to continue. So that's Mm. one of the biggest arguments with the death penalty. Whether you're for or against it, it shouldn't be happening while we have such a flawed system. Wow. Um, But then when you go into should it exist at all, there are so many non-Jesus reasons why the death penalty is bad. You know, people say, oh, it's a deterrent, right? It prevents people from committing these crimes. But actually, no, because first, the different it requires people to know what a death penalty eligible offense is, hmm. right? We could say aggravated murder, but what does aggravated murder really mean? Right. There is a list of factors that can raise um, raise a crime from first degree murder to aggravated murder, Hmm. right? Certain things like if the person you killed was a police officer or under the age of 13, or if you did the crime uh, while committing another felony, Hmm. right? People don't have that list in their back pocket, making sure they dance around a death penalty eligible offense. Also, when you look at states that have abolished the death penalty, they consistently have lower homicide rates than the states that still have it. I'm over here in Ohio where we have the death penalty and Ohio is considered the serial killer capital of the U S because we just got a higher rate of them. Hmm. Um, So when we look at the actual effectiveness of it between wrongful executions, between not having a deterrent effect, it doesn't serve a purpose. And Hmm. so many countries in the world have already got gotten rid of it. The countries that still have it are places like North Korea, and China and Russia, places that we right. as America like to distinguish ourselves from, say <laughs> we're doing things differently. Oh, with everything else except for this death penalty thing, we're gonna keep that on the books. Right. So it's especially right. ineffective as a deterrent. But that is the way that we set it up, right? We set it up as a, you know, you don't want this to happen, so don't do this. You know, this is meant to be a deterrent. This should scare you away from doing the crime. You know, I was just reading these statistics before we came on here, you know, like who, based on American statistics, who opposes, who doesn't, and how those opinions vary based on education, political party, race, ethnicity, and it's, you know, uh, religious affiliation versus agnostic atheists who supports, Mm -hmm. who doesn't, you can probably guess where people land on that side of the fence and it's just really interesting because these are just like unbiased statistics it's just kind of how this plays out and 
people who are Christian tend to much more strongly favor the death penalty versus mm-hmm. people who do not believe in God. And it's like, well, when you pull that thread, it's like, well, how come? Why? Where do we go when we pull? How does it unravel? How does it play out? Why are people mm-hmm. who believe in a God who came and, you know, to save everybody that uh, putting someone to death for a crime is the best solution to that puzzle. Like, it's just, it's such a fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right. To to adapt a, a quote from Tim Gombas, when you, <laughs> I know, I listen to the podcast. Uh, when you actually start to look at the death penalty, you don't actually need to do the work of deconstructing the ideas that support it. Because when you start analyzing it, when you start looking at it with mm. the heart of God, it deconstructs itself. Right. Mm. It's standing on nothing. It's standing on fallacies of theology and misunderstanding about God's heart for people. Mm. It's standing on limits of how far God's grace extends. Mm. And so when you actually dive into it, there's not a whole lot of good reason for the death penalty as a follower of Jesus. Right. Uh, yeah, but I hear the, I hear, I hear the voices, Renee. I hear them. Shane, <laughs> Shane says something that just blows me away. He said the only reason there is the death penalty is because of Christians. That's the only reason. They're the groups so, like so far and above who support this that if you took their support away, um, the vast majority of people are not in support of the death penalty. It was just a fascinating thing. And obviously, they will point to the Bible, where depending on how you count, I've heard uh, it's it's in the 20s of capital crimes that were you know named punishable by death uh, in the Old Testament. And then, of course, the argument will be made that Jesus comes and he says, well, I've come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. And moreover, Paul seems to elucidate a role for the the state in Romans 13 that says, well, they carry the sword. So this this seems divinely sh- sanctioned. Sanctioned? Renee, sanctioned? That works. Um, the Shawshank <laughs> sanctioned? Um, no, divinely sanctioned. Um, and, and so I'd love for us to wrestle with, okay, how would we respond to that sort of critique? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, If you don't mind, I can walk through a few of these theological fallacies and misunderstandings that death penalty support is often based on. We we do not mind. We're fans of (laughs) theological fallacies, so go go ahead. Love it. So one of the the big ones that comes to me is that I am sure most Christians will agree that our God is a God of perfect justice. But... What we've been doing is substituting God's definition of justice with our own. Okay. Right? We could say God is a God of justice, but what does justice actually mean? What does biblical justice look like? Come on. And so when I think of God's justice, especially when embodied in his son, Jesus, I see the man who stopped the stoning of a woman caught in adultery. Hmm. I see the man who looked at the criminal hanging next to him on the cross and said, tomorrow you'll be with me in paradise. I see the man who dined with prosecutor or with uh, prostitutes and tax collectors and those whose society had labeled the worst of the worst, which mm. fun fact, 
that's a phrase often used to describe people on death row. Mm, You know, the worst of the worst, we say Mm. prosecutors and courts will say that the death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst. But if you peel back that inflammatory phrasing, if you sit across somebody who's on death row, you'll see that it's far from true. Mm. Um, And through Jesus, God's justice was no longer an eye for an eye. That's something you hear a lot Mm -hmm. in the death penalty arguments, right? Yeah. Um, they, they killed, so they should be killed. Yeah. Right. right? And that there was a lot of early justice that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, you stole this money, so you have to repay this money, this equitable justice, but that is not the system that Jesus said, Matthew five, right. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Mm -hmm. but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. And then five verses later is when we have love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right. But if Jesus is not enough, let's take it back to the beginning of the Bible. Oh, man. What's what's the first crime that we have? Murder. When Cain kills Abel, starting off strong. So what's God's punishment for that? Mm -hmm. Right. God could have rained down fire and brimstone, brought an end to Cain just like that. But he says the ground will not yield to you. And you'll be a wanderer of the earth. Hmm. And then Cain freaks out and he says, oh, my gosh, people are going to kill me if they find me. Hmm. And God Hmm. says, nope, if anyone kills you, vengeance vengeance will be taken on them sevenfold. Hmm. God was protecting Cain from from the vengeance of others, from being subjected to what many people would consider a punishment that fits the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Right. God, God was saying. I am going to protect you from death, even though you cause the death Mm. of another. Mm. So when Christians read that story, they say, oh, my gosh, our God is so merciful. Mm -hmm. God spared Cain because of his great mercy. But that's exactly what our instructions are. Right. Everybody knows Micah 6, 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Do justice through loving mercy. The, the words that God gave to Micah weren't do justice, make sure people get what they deserve or do justice, obtain convictions, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Hmm. And so Christ's justice is unending mercy and undeserved grace. Hmm. It's never you killed, so you must be killed. Jesus's version of justice is no matter what you did, you are forgiven and redeemed. Well, that and, oh, Paul, you were a killer. Oh, David, you were a killer. Oh, uh, I mean, Moses, hello, killer. Right. Interesting. Yep. Uh I wonder if we get our definitions of like revenge and justice flip-flopped sometimes. The revenge is swift and it is... Mm. Uh, equal to the crime that was committed, whereas justice tends to have a bit more um, around it. You know, often when you hear mm-hmm. people talk about justice, you'll hear about um, like reformation or <clears throat> uh, what What are the circumstances, what are the larger circumstances at play in like uh, setting up a playing field in which this crime happened? Not just the crime itself, but everything that went into the crime itself. And justice is often at least in my understanding, uh, starts to weave into like changing the atmosphere that enabled that to happen. 
<laughs> like, so I, like, I spent a lot of time in the, I think I talked about this on one of the podcasts. It might've been a while ago. <clears throat> one of my master's classes was working with a bunch of men that were serving uh, life without parole in Lancaster prison down in LA. And so we were like, there, it was like the first accredited program. So they're getting college credits. And I learned a lot about the difference that education makes in people's lives. I got real excited about it watching what education offered to men who never had it. They were all being rehabilitated. Um, and I saw a lot of what you were talking about, like the idea of people not being beyond redemption. A lot of these guys, they're, they committed, many of them committed crimes that obviously put them in a place where they're serving life without parole. And you can call that a death sentence or not. Some people will kind of go to that side of the fence. Like you, you sent them there to die. This is a death sentence. Um, but watching those guys tell their stories, and obviously there's a few of the guys who are like, I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything. And then there's guys who've sat there with the weight of whatever crime they'd committed and they were aware of it and they'd repented of it for 30 years and they'd found an education they're trying to give back into society. And then we passed, I don't remember what law it was or what uh, bill it was in like 2016 or so maybe that a lot of these guys were getting a chance at parole and a lot of them have been let out now. So I, I recorded that, re that's why I brought it up because I recorded that record where I took a bunch of those guys' stories and, and wrote those songs out of them. And so I was listening, I listened to all of them this morning just to kind of like refresh. Cause I have, I found, we just moved and I found the binder of all of their stories. They wrote to me their, mm -hmm. like it was like 45 guys wrote me their narratives. Like I said, write it however you want to tell it. What's your story? And they're, t they're heartbreaking, but the circumstances around most of those stories are just, like a complete letdown of society around a group of people and then consequences come from that. And then I, when I see that the death penalty to me, the way I see it is like, this is a really quick, easy, decisive answer to a problem. You can pull the plug on something. That person's not going to commit that crime anymore. That crime is now whatever it's fixed and we're done. And then we can continue to do that over and over again. And instead, like listening to all these guys tell their stories and now what they're doing now that some of them have been let out and what they're doing in their communities, the young men that they're meeting with, uh, the organizations that they've started, the education processes that they are investing in in their community now, they're changing things. Like they're changing the systems that brought them to where they were. There was that phrase that went around when we were working there it was like the you know, hurt people, hurt people, but healed people will heal people. It's just breaking these cycles that putting someone to death doesn't do that. It doesn't offer, sorry, I'm on a rant now. I'm going to stop talking. But. <laughs> no, it's a good rant. And it's true because one of the things about the death penalty, it's us taking somebody's fate into our own hands. Yeah. Right. Saying we have decided you should not be given an opportunity of restoration of being able to go back to fix things, to heal, right? Saying we have decided this was so bad that we're never going to let you fix things. Yeah. Um, and so I know one of the arguments I've heard um, while having conversations about the death penalty with Christians is that, you know, maybe the crime, people believe the crime was so bad, the person is deserving of death, but hey, maybe they'll have an opportunity to come to know Jesus while they're sitting on death row. Right. I hate the premise of this argument because God's grace should be enough for, you know, coming against why they should be facing the death penalty. 
but if we play along with that idea um, that, that you can justify the death penalty by giving inmates a chance to know Jesus before they're executed. Wow. First, I've been to death row a handful of times. Funny that I haven't seen those people there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to brand saving death row inmates as a ministry opportunity, then get off your butt and do the work. Love them, value them for the beautiful and treasured humans that they are. Right? We shouldn't be looking at these people as criminals or less than. They are loved by God and valued in so many ways. How can you be wanting the death of another human in that way? Mm-hmm. And then second, you know, if they're viewing the long length of time that people are on death row as a result of grace, you know, saying, oh, look at all this time that they have to redeem themselves. That's, that's a fallacy as well. Like, yes, capital cases take years and years to fully litigate, but that's not a product of Christians advocating for life. That's a product of criminal defense attorneys fighting tooth and nail to keep yeah. our clients al- alive for longer, hmm. to postpone execution in any way we can. Hmm. There's a story, uh, Willie Francis, in 1945, he was a 16-year-old Black teenager, and he was convicted of killing a white man, a man who had sexually abused him. Mm. Willie was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, again, all as a teenager. Uh, the attempted execution occurred less than a year later. The actual execution occurred a year after that. So there was less than a year between his arrest and execution. And this was through the proper legal channels in 1946. Like my, my grandparents were alive in 1946. This isn't some displaced, right. you know, event. Yeah. And this isn't even one of the many stories of white men breaking into jails, proclaiming the name of Christ and carrying a crucifix on their way to lynch black men and women. Right. Christians have not been the ones advocating for the lives and opportunities of people on death row, of mm. people committed of serious crimes. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, for the people who have like like yourself, Tim, who have done jail ministry, I am sure that you can say that spending time with those people, you wouldn't look at a single one of them and wish death. Absolutely. It is so much easier to read a news report about a heartless killer and wish the worst for them. Yeah, it's that entirely, is interesting. Yeah. yeah. That was one of the statistics was that people were much higher. Uh, people who did online polls trended much higher to support the death penalty than ones that were asked over phone calls. And I just mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting. Like once you were forced to engage a little bit more, just even just over the phone on the topic, the statistics went down, let alone if, you are you getting your hands dirty and metaphorically and going in and trying to see what the system is doing. Uh, it changed like you, you come face to face with people, you know, it changes you. It changes the way you see things. You do see the humanity of it, regardless of not justifying the crimes. And yes, the victim conversation is a very difficult one within that. And those guys are all aware of it too. Mm-hmm. They're aware of, that they have caused something. And that's a big part of, their story and their conversation and then what they want to do to change like they're aware of the weight that they're carrying at least my experience my small experience because yeah. um, i was gonna say sometimes they don't have that awareness right. totally. you have people with serious mental illnesses who had yes. a psychotic break and are totally unaware of what happened during the commission of the crime you have people with personality disorders with schizophrenia who you know are crimes that happened as an accident right like, 
the the amount of things that you have that land people on death row is insane. And so the mm. people that you're dealing with, they are in various states of being and awareness. And sometimes, you know, I'm sure that there are people on death row. I haven't had this interaction so far who admit what they did, who are fully aware um, and, you know, take ownership for it and aren't remorseful at all. Right. Right. These give them the worst facts, the worst case you can imagine. That person is still deserving of life. Hmm. That person is still deserving of God's grace. And who are we to step in and say otherwise? If there are people who are interested in learning more, where would you direct them? Obviously, the Stevenson book. Yep. Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Yep. Any, uh, any others I, that come to mind? Executing Grace by Shane Claiborne yeah. is fantastic. Uh, not death penalty related, but Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard. Wow. Um, those are the ones I've read that I've enjoyed tied to tied to Jesus. The the cross mm-hmm. and the lynching tree is another one that's high up on my list mm. uh, to read. Otherwise, if you want to read about misdemeanors, uh, <laughs> Punishment Without Crime is a great book. Talks mm. about the American misdemeanor system and all of the, the flaws that are there. Um, but yeah, and then podcasts and stuff like that justice in america um another not guilty is a fun one about public defenders telling stories of cases that they got not guilty verdicts in um and you just see kind of some of the ridiculousness that goes on in the criminal justice system with charges that should have never happened faulty prosecutions and all sorts of stuff man renee this is so so helpful and yet another reminder that Sitting in the audience of our little community are people so much smarter than we are. And so, <laughs> absolutely. That's, just, that's just, yeah, she smarter, absolutely smarter she than says, me, That's what I'm meaning. No, no, no. The we, Tim and I. Um, anyway, I, man, so proud of you and so grateful for your work. And, you know, I think one of the real hard um, things to wrestle with. Uh, I would imagine for someone like you is that you do get a lot of opposition and I would imagine some of that opposition has a, a Christian label on it. And, um, and and very often the church will say, well, the only thing that really counts as ministry is saving souls. Right. Um, and, um, and, you know, we, we heartily don't think the Bible teaches that at all. So we just bless your ministry and are grateful for your time today. Thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, are you on social media? Uh, I am on social media. I have private accounts, but I'm willing to chat with people. Um, I would imagine having a private account is smart (laughs) in your, in your setting. So yeah, for sure. Although my, my work email is on an Ohio public defender directory. So got it. People can find me that way too. Okay. Sounds great, Renee. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate you very much. Yes, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. So so we we cut the interview uh, to honor her time. And then she, she said a couple of things that were super profound. And so Tim, yeah. <laughs> through the magic of editing, I mean, the whole thing was profound, but then she like was yeah. like, whoa. She dropped, she dropped one more big bomb afterwards. So. Right. So we're going to sneak this in now. Tim, drop it in right here. 
Yeah, I know, and I didn't get a chance to say this, but one of the most encouraging things for me in all of this has been to find identity in Jesus as both a public defender and as a convicted felon, mm. right? To see the way oh, that he stepped, <laughs> to see Lord. the way that he stepped in yep. uh, to save the woman, you know, who was facing stoning yep. without ever acknowledging her guilt or innocence, right? We don't, we don't know that. Yeah. That's a big question mark. Yeah. And so to see the way that he stepped in, advocated and helped her, I'm like, that's my dude. Yeah. That's that's what I do every day. That's what I want to be. Oh, that's um, so good. He does Brian that with Steven. the woman. I'm sorry. Yeah. Brian Stevenson talks about that story in his book. Hmm. And he uh, was talking with a lady, said, we have to be stone catchers. Hmm. Um, and so that's always been a phrase that's been important to me. And then obviously Jesus says, yeah, to like see that. Jesus as a convicted felon, right? Pete. It is fascinating to read the stories of his, like the council hearings and his trial with a lawyer brain, mm. <laughs> because to, to read that, and I just want so much more information out of it. Mm. I want to know, I want, I want the transcript of the proceedings Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> to know what that was like. And I have loved um, seeing that, seeing the, the false accusations and the false testimony, mm -hmm. but then also knowing that he, you know, uh, didn't follow Jewish law. He was healing on the Sabbath. He mm -hmm. claimed to be the son of God in their eyes. That was the worst of the worst mm -hmm. at the time. Totally. And so to, to see Jesus in both the work I do and in my clients has been just so cool. Yeah. Timid is an amazing editor. <laughs> so that's what that's the magic of Tim. So you can see why we were like, oh dang, we gotta we gotta throw that in there. It um, is interesting. Jesus was a convicted felon. It's interesting in light of this conversation. That did I had not. Uh, that just I don't know. It had not played that way in my head. True. Yes. And a couple of the accusations leveled against him were capital. When yeah. they when they call him a glutton and a drunkard, that's from Deuteronomy twenty one, I think, and that was a capital offense. That was yeah. a. 21 or 24, I don't remember which, but, or 22, it's in the 20s in Deuteronomy. <laughs> um, but yes, it, it's such an interesting perspective. What a wonderful, um, I don't know, just story of calling and vocation. And I know, Tim, for you, this has been really since, I, was it before those prison days or was it that? That no. ministry that really sort of yeah, opened you mean, up to this. That was a that was not a ministry in the normal sense of ministry. The guy that I work with is a atheist um, British Indian. Oh, I'm sorry. I I, I forgot that you only it only counts <laughs> as ministry if you're working with other well, Christians. Oh, I forgot. That is how people. Anytime that this gets brought up in conversation, they're like, oh, what kind of like what throughout church? What were you doing? And it's like, well, this that wasn't what we were doing. We were coming in and trying to offer education and rehabilitation to, or the opportunity of that. So, oh, that's right. I forgot the place in the Bible where it says only through an official church can you do ministry. <laughs> I forgot. Well, so prior to that, that was how I was told ministry worked totally you went in and just like you had to give them the little bible and tell them that uh jesus is jesus sees what they did but even though they're gonna sit there 
they're forget. I don't know, whatever. But yeah. yes, that that experience um, is something I'm still working with. Um, I was working on a documentary before we moved, before the pandemic started. So I've been in there a bunch more times with cameras, kind of doing interviews and talking with the guys and um, talking about education and the difference education makes, the opportunity to education. One of the guy's stories, his name was Dortel, and he was uh, a young African-American guy. When he was in high school, he went to his counselor and was like, hey, I really want to go to college. Like, what kind of opportunities do I have? Like, what, what, what should I do? What should I be looking at? What should I be doing? And the counselor said, you're not college material. Oh, my god! Don't even worry about it. And then he ended up taking the other track what opportunity to him, which was selling drugs. And he did that for a long time. And then during one of the, um, you know, one of the times he was selling, violence erupted. His wife was shot and killed. And he went to prison as accessory. He didn't, he didn't kill anybody. But he's still there. He's been there for 30-something years. And he has a daughter. And so their daughter has been raised without either parent. Hmm. And he's one of the songs that's on the record. And his thing always like hit me really hard because he has pursued... He's gotten like three degrees in prison. And he's hmm. gone to seminary in prison. So he has pursued education and has pursued trying to change that system because of what was hmm. denied to him in the process. And it's just... It's so infuriating when you look at... Oh, for sure. You know, for me, I um, I I got to study philosophy, religion, and ethics in uh, grad school, and so this was one of the ethical topics we really wrestled with was the death penalty, and which which produced a bigger question: what's the what is the purpose of justice? Yeah, is it retribution? Exactly. That's what I was trying to say. The revenge or is thing. It, That's better. Yes. Is it rehabilitation? <laughs> Yeah, and um, and biblically, when you when the word the word justice, um, you know, is very 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 similar to the word for righteousness, um, and it, it and it's relational, and so um, for me that was super eye opening because they presented it in a very both sides kind of way. Like here are the arguments for, here are the arguments against. But um, the more I've been immersed in Jesus and the honor shame culture and and kind of the world that that was was present when he arrived on the scene, uh, I've realized oh even the the commandments um, that that seemingly had the death penalty attached um, those aren't law in the same way we see law. So John Walton, you have to read a book called The Lost World of the Torah. He does this incredible exposition of how how we understand law and command versus how the ancients understood law and command. First of all, laws were always given as examples. They weren't given as um, specific applications. So be the kind of person who, if your cattle, you know, if your cattle trampled on someone else's field, would pay them back four times. Right. Um, so they were they were almost they were demonstrations of wisdom rather than sort of legal codified um, expressions of here's what must happen in these scenarios. But the biggest point he made, and the one that was just mind blowing, is he said capital punishment was assigned to biblical commands, but rarely carried out. Because in the ancient world, 
you would assign capital punishment to the commands that were the most important. It wasn't that you fulfilled um, that 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 if if somebody did this, then you would put them to death. But it was it was the king's way of showing which commands were the most important in the sort of legal code were the commands that had the stiffest penalties. So you have commands around the Ten Commandments that are getting um, capital punished, not because God was interested in actually killing people, but, but to show that those things were the most important commands of the Torah. And when you look at rabbinical writing, the, the rabbis would go to great lengths to... Um, to restrict the application of capital punishment to the most extreme circumstances imaginable. Um, and they did that understanding that God's heart wasn't um, to, uh, to have a system of justice that put people to death, but rather held out every possibility imaginable for restoration and reconciliation. And so the way I hear Renee's argument, and I think it's really sophisticated, is on the one hand, there are biblical grounds to doubt that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between a, a command in the Old Testament uh, to execute somebody for a crime and how we understand um, in our legal system commands and crimes and execution. And then secondly, even if you think there's a biblical case to be made, the current application of the death penalty in America is, um, is unjust and an expression of injustice toward, towards minority people. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, even if you want to make the biblical argument, no, no, there's a place for this. It's hard for me without pre-committing to a political viewpoint, it's hard for me to understand how you can make um, uh, a death penalty argument just based on on the statistics alone and yeah. how how infrequently um, uh, or unfairly, excuse me, this is applied. And Shane, read Shane's book. Shane's book is is just you know it's so good on on this and. Yeah. Um, and it's also the recognition that, you know, the the work of Jesus in the world, it, it is not part of the Christian duty in the world to sit in judgment of the world. And so the fact that we even see, see the, the eye for eye command was given as a restriction, but Americans view it as permission. And that's not at all the heart. In fact, Jesus restricts its permissiveness mm. um, drastically in the Sermon on the Mount. But even as it stood in Old Testament context, it was a restriction. You could only take an eye for an eye. Um, and so, so the fact that it's used as permission and the fact that it's used without or apart from the countering, Content, yeah. the context of Jesus, the nuancing of Jesus, just says, man, I just don't think we're in any safe space to, to feel good about this. Um, and then if you just want to argue the economic, well, it's just less expensive. Um, man, God bless you, you good capitalist. But that is, <laughs> that is well, just utterly positioning ourselves, Positioning ourselves as people that do not pursue the right to redemption for other folks has always bothered me. And, uh, yeah. and, then, and then purposefully denying a chance at redemption for somebody. Yeah. 
Um, even if they're that redemption, I mean, even if they don't get out of jail, if the redemption is that they're sitting in there or whatever, I don't know, but it's, it, that has bothered me that we feel like we have the right to take that from somebody. Yeah. And, and sitting with all those guys, you just see that over and over again. Like at least again, it's, it's a small sample that I was around and it was men that were, had been working hard to earn the right uh, to be in the cell block that they were in and to be a part of the school and the education process that we were a part of. They had been like, you know, no offenses for 10 years or something. Like they had been working really hard to earn the right to that, to be in that position. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. So, and this even fits into the larger issues of what it is to be pro life. Yes. Right. I mean, one of the things we've suggested and that I've really changed on has been um, over the last 20 years or so, recognizing that pro-life isn't just pro-baby, but um, you know there are a series of, of political opinions that I have as a result of that theological commitment, right? Whether that's um, about immigration policies or, and I'm not saying uh, that people who disagree aren't being biblical. I'm just saying, I think there is a lack of consistency in yeah. the application of the phrase pro-life if if that only means pro-baby and it doesn't take into consideration all of these other whether it's just war whether it's capital punishment whether it's immigration policy i i, I see them as one big giant furball um <laughs> and not separate issues well and I'm, so, I'm curious if it's like abortion we've tried to solve abortion by making it illegal right so it's another like let's make a decisive decision out of sight out of mind it involves very little work on our part with mothers with um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with uh societal institutions or the way we're set up that put people into the positions that they're making those choices we like it seems to me that we like to make um it just as simple as possible. And that's what I was getting with the death penalty too. It doesn't require yeah. you to go and sit with someone or to try to change yeah, no nuance. institutions or anything. No you can just be like, oh, we kill them, it's done. Yeah. And abortion, we vote it out, it's done. It, and it, it, yeah, the nuance and everything that goes around, the, the actual blood of people and the issues, we don't necessarily want to invest in. And that seems very unbiblical to me. Yeah. Do we want to stop babies from being killed? Probably. I think most people would say that. I think even most pro-choice people would say that. Mm -hmm. Do we want to stop? Uh, do we think it's right to, should murder, you know, replace murder? Like, should we kill to, should we kill somebody who committed murder? Should murder be the response to murder? Right. I think in conversation, most people would probably, through conversation, come to a no. But it's yeah. easier to just have these really quick responses to things and that yeah one of the other guys on the on the record too is this guy named lorenzo and he he was like 15 when he got he came from an abusive home was in the city joined a gang the gang took care of him became his family mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then it's easy that those are the people who are willing to take a bat for you you'll take a bat for them and i mean you can't you when you break it down you understand he was 15 when he committed totally. a murder and had to go to jail for the rest of his life totally. he became a christian totally. in prison Mm. and had to get jumped out of his gang in the prison so that he could pursue a life with Oof. Jesus. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's he's he sacrificed a lot more to claim the name of Christ than I ever will. Yeah. I in multiple ways and it's just a 
I don't know. Maybe I'll throw his song on the end because it's kind of it made me well, think of yeah. like what justice I mean, music and, is justice and, is. And why don't you link the album again? Because in this context, that album has a whole different. Yeah, and I just meaning. like letting their stories be heard. It's not to promote me, but it's all their stories. Yeah, but Tim, you also happen to be, you know, kind of gifted. So I'll promote you. Um, <laughs> but we'd love to hear from you. Um, is this something that that especially if you have a contrary opinion, what would be some of the arguments you would put forward, or have you changed your mind on this one way or the other? We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Um, as always, man, whenever we get into controversial stuff, um, we want to walk the the balance between having opinions uh, ourselves and also making room at the table for all sorts of people who disagree or in process, just like we are. So um, anyway, we'll uh, we'll end it here. No Seth theory today. He's at <clears throat> school um, and um, she, she's preparing. He doesn't know he's preparing, but he's preparing for some snow. Um, his <laughs> like he's a he's a sledder, dude. He is all about the sledding. Oh, so bet. we gotta we gotta find a hill. Anyway. All that is to say, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace. See you next time. Found the